Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, introducing a new feature that Matt Knutson is going to explain and pitch to me and to you right now. Take it away, Matt. Well, this year we sort of uh, casually decided we're going to focus on more projects and uh, worry a little less about, you know, making sure we cover every single yeah. Marvel movie. And and uh, we thought we might pivot a little bit in 2019 towards focusing on more of these retrospection projects because we've had such a good time doing Spielberg's oeuvre and the AFI project. So we thought we might start a couple more of these. And I sort of had this brainstorm the other night, and I, I sent you an email about it, just sort of briefly outlining my idea. But I thought it might be more fun if I really give you the hard sell pitch here live, and you can react to it in real time. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll hate it, and maybe you'll reject it, and maybe this will be a really short episode. We'll see. Uh, yeah, spoiler I'm not going to hate it. Any, any, any okay. sort of retrospective I'm into, any sort of big, ambitious project that we're going to finish and, you know, in, in months and years ahead of time, I'm in for. Well, what's cool about this project is that it needs to be finished this year. It's not like AFI where it's going to, you know, last, you know, potentially many years or even Spielberg, which has now spanned multiple yeah, years yeah. of our lives. This one has to be finished by December of 2019 because the name of the project is Retrospectating 1999. And it's specifically about the 20th anniversary of what I consider to be one of the great movie years. So basically, I, I was listening to, um, I, I've been on kind of a Soderbergh kick recently. I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of perennially always on a Soderbergh kick. You're but always particularly, on a Soderbergh kick, yes. <laughs> but this week, particularly because he has a new movie out on Netflix called High Flying Bird, which maybe we can cover at some point. Interesting film. Not sure if you've seen it yet. Oh, I saw it. You, you saw it. Okay, cool. We can talk about it later. But I, I heard him interviewed on Bill Simmons' podcast recently, and uh, they were talking about what a great year for movies 1999 was. And this is sort of when I was already noodling this project and thinking back like all right it's the 20th anniversary of some of my favorite films we really should cover them but it, it, it seems significant to cover the entire year because even at the time I maintain that it was a particularly strong year for movies I think I remember even having conversations with you about it you know in December of 99 and the subsequent Oscars we were kind of talking about was it is it just recency bias which wasn't a term at the time but uh, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the equivalent was uh, is it recency bias or was that an uncommonly strong year for
for movies. And so in retrospect, 20 years later, I feel like 99 can hold up alongside of significant years, 1939 being one of the more famous ones, 1967, which is actually a year we've been covering a lot recently on our uh, AFI podcast, mm-hmm. 1971, 1994 is another year we talk about where at least the best picture category was especially strong. Yeah. And then yeah, most yeah. recently, I think most culture critics point to 2007 being an unbelievably strong, you know, Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men. Uh, so someday we'll, we'll cover that year. But I feel like 20th anniversary of a significant year like 1999 seems right. Uh, some, I don't really like the whole like celebrating something that's 10 years old. It just doesn't seem quite old enough yet. 30 years yeah. is just too long to wait to talk about this. So 20 years to me seems like a really nice compromise to celebrate a particularly significant year. And so I thought what we might do is over the course of the next 10 or 11 months, we might break down what we consider to be the films that seem significant at the time and whether or not they hold up and the films that we may not have realized at the time were going to become sort of modern classics Mm -hmm. just off the top of my head and you know we we won't we won't cover all of these films but just to give people an idea who who aren't you know as nerdy as as i am about this kind of stuff just to give people an idea about where we where we were in 1999 and what was going on you've got Varsity Blues, She's All That, Office Space, Cruel Intentions, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Ten Things I Hate About You, The Matrix, Go, All About My Mother, Election, The Phantom Menace, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Buena Vista Social Club, American Pie, The Blair Witch Project, Eyes Wide Shut, The Iron Giant, The Sixth Sense, Bowfinger, American Beauty, Sweet and Lowdown, Three Kings, Boys Don't Cry, Being John Malkovich, The Limey, One Day in September, The Insider, Dogma, Toy Story 2, The Cider House Rules, Any Given Sunday, Galaxy Quest, Magnolia, and The Talented Mr. Ripley. So there's, you know, there's 30, I feel, significant films which deserve a retrospective. I'm not saying all of them are masterpieces. I'm not going to sit here and argue that She's All That is a great movie or that the, the Blair Witch Project is something that I revisit frequently, but I do think that these are films of significance. And speaking of The Phantom Menace, if you just look at the highest grossing films of 1999, it's a fascinating list. It's The Phantom Menace, of course, and then The Sixth Sense, Toy Story 2, The Matrix, Tarzan, The Mummy, Notting Hill, The World Is Not Enough, American Beauty, and Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Now, significant because there's obviously no superhero movies, which, you know, seems crazy in today's context, but also significant in that you have American Beauty as the number ninth highest grossing film of the year at 356 million. That's a staggering number considering that, I mean, yes, it went on to win Best Picture, but you consider the subject matter and sort of the tone of that film, the fact that it it made $350 million and made it into the top 10 of the year, that's a pretty big deal. And just to uh, spoil this, yes, we will be covering American Beauty. How can you not cover American Beauty in a conversation like this? We have about seven months to figure out how to go about covering it in a in a respectful way in, in today's uh, cultural climate. But yes, of course, we have to cover that film. It's still it's still a significant piece of work from 1999. And then, you know, you have something on there like Notting Hill, which may or may not be a <laughs> film that we actually end up covering. Um, but I just don't think there's any equivalent for something like that today, right? I mean, romantic comedies just don't do that kind of business nowadays. There just isn't room for them. That's why so many of the more kind of the more impactful ones seem to be showing up on Netflix nowadays, right? I mean, they're just, it just, it's just, it's just a different environment out there. So yeah, I, I think this should be sort of like a living, breathing, fluid thing. I think this list 
as we progress over the course of this year should be kind of ebbing and flowing and morphing and changing. And what I really would like to do is I, I would like for both of us to put together our kind of quote unquote wish lists. And then um, maybe we do a couple of like honorable mentions for each month. And then maybe we throw it out there to the WLM community and maybe have people vote on films that they would like to see us cover. You know, like I feel like there's there's certain things that are pretty much set in stone. You know, like I think The Phantom Menace obviously needs to get covered. You know, I think The Sixth Sense needs to get covered. I think that, uh, you know, Magnolia, being John Malkovich, the limey, this stuff I feel is, is definitely gospel. But there's probably some outliers that uh, maybe we should have some sort of consensus opinion about what's worth covering. Something, you know, your Summer of Sam's, for example, or your Elections, or I don't know, your dogmas, cider house rules, some of these things that are a little more on the fringe that might be fun to talk about, but maybe we should let um, let the masses weigh in. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important that you mention that we were, you know, what, 15, 16 years old, January of 1999, mm-hmm. because there was a crazy sort of cultural confluence happening right around the point we were in high school. Now, maybe because we were in high school, we considered it more significant than it actually is in retrospect, but I think that there was something very interesting happening in terms of like the influence of MTV and a certain Mm -hmm. sort of like genre resurgence that was happening at the time. And then the WB, like culture was kind of spotlighting teenagers and excuse me, and high school concerns for some reason in the late nineties. And as a result, you had these films like she's all that and varsity blues and cruel intentions and 10 things I hate about you. And then eventually American pie all released in 1999. I don't know, there was like a groundswell happening, right? If you if you consider the kind of grunge culture or the, you know, the grunge explosion coming out of Seattle in the early 90s, that's more of a college radio thing, right? So it's really revolving around 20-somethings. As that starts to die down, it seems like culture starts shifting younger and wanting to target teenagers more so than 20-somethings for whatever reason. And then if you want to take it even further, as you get into the early 2000s, culture starts shifting even younger and then all of a sudden this whole tween thing becomes a big deal right and that's where you get all your twilights and your hunger games is or whatever right but at this point you're coming you're coming out of the teen film explosion the high school film i guess maybe one would call golden age of the 1980s which would be the john hughes era right so you've got all your you got all your john hughes movies that are sort of around the mid to late 80s and then by the end of the 80s, you've got things like um, you got things like Dead Poet Society or uh, Say Anything, right? Uh, Reagan, late Reagan era stuff. And then as you get into the early 90s, uh, teen films kind of are in this weird limbo where they're kind of like wandering around in the dark looking for an identity. And I think once you start to get into the mid 90s, you start to see things like Dangerous Minds and Hackers and then Clueless which I think is a pretty significant instructive text where there's like a bit of a shift happening, right? Where you have Amy Heckerling who's coming out of the 1980s because she's, you know, responsible for things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but now she's commenting on this new decade. And the other the other thing you get in 1995 is you get Kids, right? So, and Kids is, of course, one of Miramax's first big success stories. And then, so there's this shift happening and there's, again, a shift towards an interest in films about teenagers, but also, I don't know, looking at, the, these subcultures and looking at these teenage concerns in a different way. And then in 1996, speaking of Miramax, you get Scream. And that, I think, is a game changer because now you're getting into this this like genre exercise stuff. And you've got Kevin Williamson, who's this new big important voice who's not a teenager but becomes like this proxy voice for 
teenage concerns, right? Yeah, there's more of, of an emphasis on self-awareness, there's more of an emphasis on sexuality, and there's more of an emphasis mm -hmm. on characters who are familiar with pop culture, right? Like that's what Scream is all about. That was like that was like the code that Kevin Williamson cracked. These are characters in a horror movie who are familiar with the tropes of the horror movie. So that becomes a pretty big deal. And then in 1997, you get Scream 2, which furthers this trajectory that we're on. And then the same year you get, I know what you did last summer. And so you start to get all of the, so now we're breaking all of these new, exciting, sexy, young movie stars, right? Because you get your Sarah Michelle Gellers and you get your Jennifer Love Hewitts and you get your Freddie Prinzes and your Ryan Felipe's, like all these heartthrobs, all these teen beat cover kids uh, start breaking into these mainstream films. And they're sort of doing it, the genre, the horror film backdoor in this case. In 1998, you get Can't Hardly Wait, which is like this crazy confluence of actors who are gonna go on, who are just gonna like infiltrate pop culture for the next uh, five or six years. And then in the same year, of course, Dawson's Creek premieres on January 20th, 1998. And that's kind of like, that's a red letter date, right? We are sophomores in high school, right? You and I were the same age, or we're at least we're in the same high school class. So we're sophomores in high school. We've been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer because that's the, that's the hot teen show at the time. And then on the back of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Kevin Williamson coming off of Scream, and then the WB, which has become this fledgling network that is sort of like tapped in to this sort of MTV-influenced uh, cultural confluence, uh, says, hey, what if, we, what if we take sort of the sensibilities of Scream and inject it into a, uh, a soap opera context? You know, January 20th, 1998 becomes like this red letter date. It was like the friggin' moon landing for 16 year olds, right? Like yeah. everybody rushes home to watch this stupid thing. They've done this incredible job. They basically pasted poor James Vanderbeek over every single <laughs> bus stop. You know, like there's real, they, they really went all out making sure that they, um, they got the word out and turned this thing into a phenomenon before anybody had seen, you know, frame one of the stupid show, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't understate how big a deal this was to people our age. We're the same age as the characters, more or less. Uh, yeah. we've, we've been hearing that Paula Cole song. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the pilot is, is absolutely just catnip for people like us. Uh, yeah. I remember being imbued by the sense of nostalgia that I had no right to have being a 15-year-old, <laughs> but it felt nostalgia for the present tense, if that makes sense. It, it was so bizarre. But uh, yeah, the show hit me right away. And Vanderbeek, of course, was fantastic. And uh, Pacey and Joey and uh, I even forget Michelle Williams' name now, which is kind of indicative of where she was on the <laughs> on the Q rating rankings for the the four leads there. Yeah, Jen, uh, Jen, Jen, right. uh, Jen, Jen Lindley, I think. Um, yeah, she's the she's the sex pot. But I was I was rewatching the the opening. You know, the aforementioned Paula Cole mm -hmm. scored uh, opening. I, I watched the cold open, then I watched the credits, and it's interesting. She's actually second build. It's it's Vanderbeek, then Michelle Williams, then Joshua Jackson, then Katie Holmes. But in spite of that, at the time. Nobody really was looking to her as the breakout of this thing, right? Like, would you, would you, I mean, look at us 20 years later, she's now, what, thrice Oscar nominated? Yeah. And at I mean, the time, it, it never occurred to me she was going to be the breakout star. It felt like the first, the top three were the ones who people were focusing on. And I'm not sure that anyone had the, had a leg up on the other, you know, Katie Holmes, I, I remember being a pretty big deal right away and Vanderbeek, of course, and, and Pacey. Why am I forgetting his name right now? Oh my Joshua God. Jackson. Joshua Jackson. Oh, that, he, he was <laughs> probably the biggest great. star at the time because of Mighty Ducks, right? I guess biggest star, the most, <laughs> the only known name, yes, I suppose. Yes. And also,
also he had a pretty meaty role in the in the in the first season. Of course, he has the oh, yeah. fair, fair teacher, and he's he's the comic relief. Vanderbeek was a pretty dang big deal, right? I mean, only because. The WB told us he was a big deal. Sure. Right? Like, he didn't really have much of a track record at this point, and he's just kind of this vanilla uh, cipher of a, um, <laughs> of a of a protagonist. I don't want to take anything away from the guy. I actually kind of feel like the industry he sort of did Vanderbeek dirty. We're going to talk about Varsity Blues here in a second, but I, I always felt bad for what happened to that guy. I mean, I'm sure he made... You know, the, the show went 128 episodes, so it obviously went into syndication. I'm sure he'll, he's doing just fine. Wasn't his last big role playing himself in uh, that sitcom, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, right? <laughs> is he playing himself? I didn't realize that. I think that. he is. I think he's just uh, he's James Vanderbeek who lives next door. Which, <laughs> he's playing washed, which, washed yeah. up actor James Vanderbeek. I, I know. It's so sad, but it feels like his full realization of where he is in the industry came at that moment. You know, he always seemed like a nice enough guy. Uh, I think he's an underrated actor. Uh, I think he's he was very funny in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back where he's also playing himself mm-hmm. and being very self-effacing. Um, you know, he, he went on to do the Rules of Attraction later where he basically plays the brother of... Um, Patrick uh, Bateman. Patrick Bateman, Christian Bale's character for American Psycho. But the problem with that movie is that he's just such an unbelievably unlikable character and he doesn't have the humor that Patrick Bateman has. And as a result, him playing against type just didn't click in the way that I, I obviously he was hoping. And it no was, one, right? no one saw it except us. We were there opening night. We were indeed a little double feature. <laughs> Puncher Glove saw it. Adam Sandler after the screening. Exactly right. Greatest night ever. All right, so I'm going to keep setting the table here uh, as we work our way through 1998. So obviously you get this this Dawson's Creek explosion, and then in June of that year, Can't Hardly Wait comes around. Right? Can't Hardly Wait for some reason wasn't on my radar when we were in high school. I didn't even see it until years later, and now it's one of my all-time favorite high school comedies. I actually watch it all the time. I think it's incredible incredibly clever and charming and they do this really fun conceit where they basically say all right what's the best part of most high school movies the best part of most high school movies is the party or the prom or whatever mm-hmm. why don't we just make the entire movie the party yeah just kind of a stroke make of the entire right? plane out of the black box that's the right thing to do yeah i just rewatched watched when i did see this in the theater i remember distinctly i don't know if it was opening weekend or, or soon thereafter but probably part of that was everyone was in love with jeffrey love hewitt at that point sure good reason height of her powers yeah the, yeah very height of her powers and uh I don't know. I I think it ages fine. It, it's really an it, you know it's a common theme with the movies we're talking about today. But easy watch. It, it goes by really quickly, and there's some there's more than enough clever things going on. And I kind of like the spread of characters they have going on here. And uh, yeah. fun sh- seeing Charlie Cor- Corsmo in his last big role. It's uh, my favorite subplot of that movie. <laughs> I, I find it so fucking funny that just the trajectory of that character. I, that, that's far and away my favorite. Part. I mean, I think Ethan Embry's kind of a wet blanket by design. And he's, you know, he's kind of a classical uh, like nice guy in today's parlance, right? Yeah, for sure. And Jennifer Love Hewitt, you know, has a relatively thankless role. Of just having to be, you know, like 90% of that character, uh, unfortunately, I, I, is I was, just that was, she's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to my girlfriend, we were watching it the other night, and uh, there's so many scenes of her just like isn't allowed to say anything while acting. And you know, I, I like Jennifer Hughes, <laughs> she's not a great actress, and so she's doing this thing where she's just awkwardly gawking at everyone, <laughs> yes. like in, in front of a door frame multiple times. Yeah, very thankless, and uh, especially for her. Going down this crazy murderer's row of a cast here, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to those two, you've got, you know, and Charlie Cosmo, we got Lauren Ambrose, who would go on to do uh, Six Feet Under, right? Yeah. Uh, Peter Peter 
Facinelli is a great villain. Uh, Seth Green is very, very funny. Freddie Rodriguez, Donald Faison, who I guess was a couple years off of um, uh, Clueless by this point. Jamie Presley, very young Jamie Presley. Chris Owen, who's one of these guys who's just a perennial. Like he's in all of these, you know, he's in Cheese All That. He's in American Pie. He's just always popping up. Uh, very young Jason Siegel playing yep. a very funny stoner character. Uh, Clea Duvall, who's another person who always who pops up in so many of these films. Uh, very young Selma Blair, Jenna Elfman, Melissa Joan Hart, yeah. uh, Breckin Meyer, and then uh, Jerry O'Connell, who oh, yeah. uh, he would have just been coming off of Scream 2, I guess, at this point. It's a, it is a crazy cast, and, and like the lesser known parts are the more famous people nowadays, which is which is interesting. Maybe kind of makes sense, you know, people who have uh, something to give as a character actor, something something quirky to give, are not as uh, susceptible to career downslides as sort of empty, pretty faces of the uh, late 90s in these movies. And, and so Ethan Embry would be just, just be coming off of uh, Empire Records as well, right? Which isn't really, it's not an important film for me from the 90s. No, for a lot of people, it's a sacred cult text. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's not strictly a high school movie, so it doesn't totally fit into this subject. He's definitely, I mean, he was one of those guys who really, I don't know, he just, he, he found a really nice niche there in the 90s. And Yeah, he was just coming off Vegas vacation as well. So. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Continuing through 1998, so then you got The Faculty later that year, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Robert Rodriguez's take on sort of like this genre exercise in high school with Elijah Wood kind of working his way out of the uh, child actor ghetto. And then uh, later that year, you also have Pleasantville, which I think is a really interesting film for a number of reasons. You know, Gary Ross directs it, who, who would eventually go on to start the Hunger Games franchise. But then you've also got Tobey Maguire, who's sort of on the verge of, of breaking out I guess, you know, he, he's, mm-hmm. he's coming off of the ice storm at this point. He's got Spider-Man coming up in a few years. But then you also have, you know, young, handsome Paul Walker. And you got Reese Witherspoon, who's really sort of like establishing herself as a, you know, a legitimate actress who just happens to be, you know, young. Yeah. <laughs> but she's but she's kind of, she's sort of trans, Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon are kind of transcending a lot of this stuff, right? Whereas yeah. we think of, you know, Paul Walker, sorry, Michelle Geller, like these are teenage movie stars who can, who only really have like one gear. Whereas you look at Tobey Maguire at that point, and you're like, oh, that, that's a real actor who just happens to be that age. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think and, and look in retrospect at actors having expiration dates on their, you yeah. know, on the heights of their careers and whether they know it or not. And, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll talk more about, you know, where these uh, characters went, where these actors went after movies like She's All That and Varsity Blues. But there does seem to be, you need to have a certain breakthrough into different types of roles. And if you don't get them by a certain age, it seems hard to come back from. And then and that's sort of a continuing theme in a lot of these actors' careers, which is both unfortunate and but kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and like you said, it tends to be some, sort of like the fringier players in these things who who seem to sort of emerged or at least had more staying power than your Freddie Prince Juniors or your Jody Leno Keiths or even your you know Sarah Michelle Gellers for that matter. Think of it in a, in a broader sense, right? Like how many actors in Hollywood are allowed to sort of just play different versions of themselves in big movies forever, right? It's it's very few as the age. It's your Tom Cruise's, right? It's your, I don't know, I mean, <laughs> who else even are we talking about? So it, it makes sense that people who have sort of one note don't really, you know, get to continue to make big time movies and and they're only popular for this short period of time. Like, it, it makes sense. You know, the, the obvious move is to go back into TV and a lot of them have done that. But even then, it's, it, it's hard to do that if you're not like hysterically funny, right? Well, it's interesting 
interesting that you mentioned and use the term expiration date because uh, by definition these are films about people of a certain age. Yeah. And uh, and you know it's 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 been a it's been kind of a joke in, in filmmaking basically since the beginning that you know these are always films about teenagers played by twenty somethings, right? Yeah. So there will come a point where you just can't keep getting away with playing a teenager because <laughs> you're thirty five, right? So yeah. it, you either got you either got to pivot into something else, which some of them were obviously able to do. Reese Witherspoon is obviously an Oscar winner by this point. And then some of them just can't pivot. Some of them, you know, sort of, I guess, either got pigeonholed or they just didn't have another gear. Yeah. Unfortunately. Moving into the year in question, 1999. Do you know what happened on uh, January 12th, 1999, Oscar? I I don't know. We were probably starting our second week of uh, second trimester at Seattle Prep somewhere yes. like yeah I, I don't know you tell me Britney Spears releases uh, Baby One More Time Ooh, which uh, shit. is going to uh, sell uh, 121,000 units in the first week and is going to sell 10 million units by the end of 1999 oh Jesus yeah all right. Before the end of the year, Backstreet Boys will release their album Millennium, which is going to become one of the uh, you know best-selling albums of the year. Christina Aguilera is going to release her eponymous debut album, mm-hmm. and then in early 2000, NSYNC is going to release their album, and uh, also and rock music has died more or less. Yeah, I mean grunge, grunge is definitely yeah. done, and we're we're migrating into something different, right? Yes. April twentieth. 1999, infamously, the Columbine massacre happens, right? Mm -hmm. So the eyes of the world are shifting towards looking at high schools and teenagers and what teenagers are listening to and if they're influenced by music and all these other things. So 1999 really becomes the year of the teenager, yeah, for better or for worse. And so, uh, yeah, three days after Baby One More Time is released in record stores, Varsity Blues comes along, co-produced by MTV Films. MTV Films, their their fourth movie. Do you know their first three movies, Matt? I bet you, I bet you can do it. I know Joe's, uh, Joe's Apartment. That's the first one, right? Yeah. And I only know that because the trailer grew grossed me out so this the idea of it grossed me out so much that it was like burned into my brain i've never seen joe's apartment um, i don't think anybody's seen joe's apartment i don't yeah. think that movie actually exists i have seen the uh, other two though uh beavs and butthead do america i was there uh, opening makes sense. Night, of course okay and then uh dead man on campus featuring zach morris i, I got some beers let's drink them <laughs> god damn it i love that movie that's um, mark paul gosler and Tom Everett, Tom Scott. Everett Scott. That's right. Yeah. So the fourth MTV film, like we said, James Vanderbeek is is known now, right? Because Dawson's Creek. We've been inundated. If you've watched MTV uh, over the preceding months and weeks about Varsity Blues and I Don't Want Your Life, people are primed and ready for this movie. It doesn't go gangbusters at the box office. The R rating probably doesn't help, but it makes a tidy little profit but uh this movie was right in our wheelhouse man I, I i know i was there first couple weekends to see it in the theater i believe you were too right i was absolutely there opening night yeah i mean the whipped cream bikini was already infamous before any of us had even seen the film yeah and uh trailers were ubiquitous uh, obviously i was watching a lot of mtv at the time and mm-hmm. you certainly couldn't avoid it there i don't know just the fact that the poster above the titles has james vanderbeek and john voigt mm-hmm. i just found that to be such strange <laughs> bedfellows i was so fascinated by just that as a concept i was like all right well i need to see this because obviously we're all flying high on anaconda fever by this point (laughs) in the 90s so i gotta see what this is all about and john voight god bless him he thinks he's making midnight cowboy right you know like he thinks he's making uh uh, coming home and he's really going big he's and honestly in retrospect probably should have got that supporting actor nomination i think john voight is kind of tremendous in this movie he's an unbelievably great villain no he is he is great i mean he he definitely lends like an, an 
an air of uh, uh well gravitas of course but like the the legacy that is contained within him throughout this movie that drives him is is abundantly clear you know it makes sense that he's the he's top build with vanderbeek here because no one else in this movie was a name at this point right paul walker yeah. wasn't known scott con wasn't known ali larder amy smart none of these people were were big names so it, it makes sense to to put him front and center and he has some of the more uh you know meaty scenes in the movie of course i'll crib a little bit from the uh from the folks over at the rewatchables podcast who covered this movie um uh, about a year ago mm-hmm. they made the good point that like he's this legendary figure and he's you know he rules with an iron fist and he even the first time you see him he's giving kind of like a Mussolini salute over the pep rally yeah but he's won two championships in 30 years that's that's not a great record right well in Texas is tough man holy shit He's, he's won, what, 18 division titles? That's really good. I think he's won like 23 division titles or something, but he's only won two championships in 30 years. I don't know, you know, maybe I just don't know that much about high school sports, but to me that doesn't seem very impressive. For well, okay, so of- hold on. I mean, West Canaan doesn't seem like a big school, but they mentioned that they're in 4A, and I believe 4A is a pretty, maybe 5A and 6A are bigger, but it's not a big high school, and Texas is a big-ass state. Okay. So if you think about it, like in the NBA or NFL or whatever, if you win two championships and how 30 years that's pretty darn good right i'm gonna i'm defending bud kilmer here. i'm not gonna defend his tactics but i will defend his legacy say what you will about the man but brought home titles. De- you're not gonna defend the way that he uh has a penchant for shooting up 17 year olds with cortisone yeah i think it has been discussed but this movie i may have found upon rewatch sort of a lot of the comedy and humor to not be maybe my style anymore or more of its time i i did find the football stuff to be pretty prescient which is which is impressive you know whether it's the sort of old school style of bud kilmer at clashing with new school ideas you know sort of predicted the rise of the the spread offense and, and more passing in, in high school and college football mm-hmm. um and then the concussion stuff and the and the, and the shooting up stuff and the and the pills stuff like that's this came out before those were you know huge hot button issues right sure. um so that, that is that is pretty cool that this movie tapped into that 10 years really before people even made a stink about that shit in the NFL. Varsity Blues more like Vanguard Blues, right? <laughs> I'm going to ignore These guys that. are really, really at the bleeding edge here. Um, and it's I think it's also significant that the, the 1999 begins with a football film that is addressing these concerns of Varsity Blues. And the, the, the year ends with, uh, you know, modern classic Any Given Sunday, oh, which uh, focuses on a lot of the same details. I really, really hope we cover that movie. I find that movie fascinating i probably hadn't seen varsity blues in over a decade i've probably seen this movie half a dozen times in my life i think i saw it twice in the theater and um i gotta say it's pretty goddamn watchable you know it's it's, it seems a little silly to be starting off this series we're like celebrating the great films of 1999 and the first thing we talk about is varsity blues but i think it's significant for this this subject matter of these you know teen films high school films we wanted to highlight in this episode, but I think it's also uh, pretty damn serviceable. I mean, formulaic for sure, mm-hmm. but still pretty effective in the way that it executes formula, like very cleanly, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is an interesting movie to start with for, for a couple of reasons, because it's not heralded as a masterpiece, but I think it still is in the sort of, in the zeitgeist for, for weird reasons, whether it's the sort of oddity of this being peak Vanderbeek times and him being the star of a <laughs> of a semi-blockbuster semi movie we're getting into stuff and she's all that we'll hit onto it teen moves and stuff are are, are 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 more meta and talking about pop culture and this movie doesn't really do that right like the pop culture references of this movie what begin and end with kurt vonnegut 
(laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, there isn't that many, you know, and she's all that. They're discussing the real world. And one of the characters is actually on the show, the real world in the in the reality of the movie. Yeah, for example. And and you're right. There isn't that much of that here. Uh, I mean, the soundtrack is very much of the time. Yes. Um, The Foo Fighters stuff and the Green Day stuff was all very, Mm -hmm. very much of the of the late 90s. But yeah, you're right. I I think this movie, it is a little more timeless, I would say, than some of the other films we're discussing, because it's pretty modest in terms of what it's attempting to achieve here. And yeah, like you said, it's not really making commentary the time or on the late 90s so much as making commentary about Texas and, you know, Mm -hmm. high school, high school athletics and male bonding and stuff like that. Thematically, what what are we talking about here? It's just the the pressure that uh, community puts on you that that high school puts on you that sports puts on you that your parents put on you but other than that you're you're right like there's not there is a little bit of like boys will be boys and football players getting <laughs> away from stuff and sort of how your stature increases depending on on, on how well you play football I, I guess but i mean none of that stuff is surprising or subversive in any way and so like you said it, it does hit well-worn territory but its execution is 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 a little different it's it, it's fun like you said this is a really easy watch, easy watch. and the uh the, the football scenes themselves they hold up pretty well i mean they are kind of cheesy you know you feel like you're in the action they have a lot of low angle stuff that works part of the reason that this works pretty well and is pretty smooth and tends to clip right along is based uh, in no small part on the fact that it was written by this guy w peter liff mm-hmm. probably best known for writing patriot games and also point break yeah so doesn't really have much else <laughs> on his no on his imdb page but uh, i gotta say that you know if you wrote patriot games varsity blues and point break i think you're good i think your legacy is is secure patriot games to varsity blues is is a pretty crazy leap but uh God bless him. I mean, that's that's really cool. The, a guy who didn't, who doesn't have quite as impressive a filmography would be director Brian Robbins, who's probably most famous for Good Burger, but then also the uh, one, two, three, Eddie Murphy punch, Norbit, Meet Dave, and A Thousand Words. What do you think it was about him that Eddie Murphy liked that he just got out of his way, didn't ask much of him? Like, what what what, what could it have been that? locked these two legends together i think it just proves that eddie murphy was just a big good burger fan <laughs> yeah, i mean who was. who isn't but i mean clearly he was very taken with good burger or maybe varsity blues. A varsity blues fan, yeah. yeah fair <laughs> i always like the fact that in uh, mean girls that rachel mcadams that they make a point of saying rachel mcadams character's favorite movie is varsity blues yeah you know i i, I think at the time I was kind of taken with this movie because it was rated R, and so there was like a little bit of an edge to it. I mean, at the end of the day, m- most everything is implied. There isn't really any legitimate nudity or anything like that. Well, you there's know, some. Go we, to, we got the teacher. It, it just seemed like for a 16-year-old Matt Knudsen, it was like just racy enough, you know? Like it was just edgy enough that I was pretty excited about going to see this in the theater because technically it wasn't even really old enough yeah. to go I mean, and it, see this film. It, it's no, Yeah, it's no Pulp Fiction. It's no South Park even, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, it's... It, it, it's it's fairly chased in that way. I think part of it is too like this is beginning a trend, which we'll discuss of of our lead characters in these high school movies being smart people. Uh, Vanderbeek yes. is is his dream is to go to Brown and to get out of football, and so so that's a really an interesting twist on is he's a he doesn't strive to be this football hero. You know, falls ass backwards into it and ends up kind of liking it and being very confused by the whole thing, uh, which is a cool you know sort of take on the on the football star. And then we have you know even Ali Larder's character who. Uh, 
can be who could have been really a stock you know star fucker kind of kind of person she's actually got some heart and some some realistic intent behind what she's doing and then and even, apparently gets very good grades yeah as well. as well and then paul walker could have been just the typical villain huge asshole jock guy which that, is what he is and she's all that which yes. is what he is and she's all that which we'll talk about soon but he's not he's just like a, a, a smiling happy jock dude who's good who, who knows football and wants to be good at football and then sort of stays strong throughout his uh throughout his injuries and whatnot so the the characters on a whole are pretty darn likable you have all of the the villainy taken up by bud kilmer john voigt uh-huh. And maybe uh-huh. a little bit by a pretty hilariously stupid father of uh, James Vanderbeek. Sure, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I think that's part of why it goes down smooth because you, you you do like pretty much every character in this movie, and they all go on their own particular journeys, pretty much. Yeah, I mean Scott Kahn, who has kind of like made a career out of playing these you know real rabble rouser types, uh, who's perfectly good at it, and now he's on a you know he's on a network drama and so he can you know he, he can ride that all the way to the bank which is cool good for him yeah he's the only character who i feel like is, is a little harder to defend <laughs> in, in, in ret- retrospect right i mean yeah. there's scenes of him like um basically plying underage girls with uh with pills and booze and being very proud of himself about that uh you know he's stealing cop cars i mean that's that's his that's his function and i, and I get it and, and, and I, I, kind of, they don't humanize him at least they don't they don't pretend that he's like a good guy or doing some he's pursuing some noble pursuits of any kind right but you have those sort of role players in these kinds of films who are so necessary and god bless guys like scott Kahn or matthew lillard who were able to like rise to the challenge in the 90s and really provide such an interesting energy in films like this right sure yeah. i mean you really need these these supporting guys to uh, just add some you know add a little energy to this stuff because you know your paul walkers or your james vanderbeeks these guys fall very quickly into template and stereotype yeah. So luckily you got you got Matthew Lillard's and Scott Kahn's or Charlie Corsmos to mix things up a little bit, right? <laughs> yes, God bless the Charlie Corsmos. You know, uh, you know who else shows up in this movie? And I'm pretty sure his film debut. I think he was 11 years old at the time. I did. That's the, appropriate because it's a football movie. At the at the barbecue, little little Jesse Plemons being held back uh, for eighth grade for a year so he can be bigger come freshman year. Do you think this film is important in the move towards the Friday Night Lights of it all? I mean, I was never really a Friday Nights Friday Night Lights guy, but I know it's it's been a phenomenon for the last ten years and it existed tele TV and movies, right? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, it, it does. It's a different take on on the whole thing. Obviously, you know, Texas high school football uh, has, has has a lot of stories to tell. Uh, I think Peter Berg wanted to make the movie ever since he read the book, right? And I forget the crazy author's name. The guy's insane. The author of Friday Night Lights went bankrupt because he became, he's like a six-year-old guy, became obsessed with fashion. He owned like a okay. million dollars worth of le- leather apparel. You know, okay. you should read about the story. It's fucking weird. <laughs> anyway, I, I think Peter Berg wanted to make Friday Night Lights after he read that book, and that's how that got into production. Maybe Varsity Blues' success allowed them to... To, to finance it, but I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's uh, Friday Night Lights is some spiritual sequel or whatever to Varsity Blues. I mean, this film comes out; it's a pretty decent sized hit. It, it, it makes uh, fifty four million on a sixteen million dollar budget. Not too shabby. And I want to, I just want to make it clear, Matt. Like, this is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I don't think either of us are, are, are saying that. 
But but for what it was trying to do, for its modest ambitions, pretty darn big success. Well, I, I think, unfortunately, the real legacy of this movie is that aforementioned line. You know, again, I'm uh, the world's smallest violin plays for James Vanderbeek throughout this whole conversation. <laughs> but, you know, the I don't want your life thing kind of becoming a meme. And then that the image of him breaking into tears in the episode of Doss's Creek. Like, I think, yeah. unfortunately, that's kind of become the guy's legacy. And that's what most people remember from this movie, which is too bad because he's actually pretty good in the movie i think he's, i think he's totally fine he doesn't have a hell of a lot to work with but yeah. i think he's good i mean he's, he manages to you know present himself as a leading man mm-hmm. and uh and it's a shame he never managed to to sort of like break out of this mold because i think he's totally fine in this and i think it's a perfectly fine movie no not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination one more shout out james vanderbeek's obscenely large jeans that he wears in an early <laughs> scene in this movie like one in the first 10 minutes he wears the biggest jeans you've ever seen in your life and it's fantastic that is actually on brand for the late 90s yeah because oh, so. <laughs> those are like jenkos or whatever yeah, right yeah. like we're starting to get into <laughs> rave culture here at this point in the late at least stateside and it would make complete sense that you'd be wearing oversized jeans in mm-hmm. 1999 all even right. in texas she's all that a uh, a remake of of uh, pygmalion am i getting that right matt yeah i mean i think most people seem to look at it as kind of like a pygmalion my fair lady thing i I've always kind of looked at it as sort of an unofficial remake of Pretty in Pink. Sure. Because I think it has a lot of the same tenets. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think Pygmalion is what they were going for, which is kind of interesting because you get basically, uh, you know, Pygmalion in a high school here. And then in Cruel Intentions, you get Dangerous Liaisons in a high school. And then in 10 Things I Hate About You, you get Taming of the Shrew in high school, right? Yeah. So they're hitting hitting on this like, hmm, maybe we can smuggle in these, you know, more highbrow (laughs) templates. Do you think think that was a function of up-and-coming screenwriters? reading Robert McKee's story <laughs> and learning that you just tell the same story but in a different setting. Could be onto something there. I mean, there's definitely a if it ain't broke, don't fix it scenario. It's like Fast and Furious is literally point break, right? I mean, it's... Yes. There, there are a lot of examples of, of these sort of templated movies going on in the in the 90s and early 2000s. I think I'm onto something. That's a good, that's my new theory. All right, yeah, yeah. develop that. I, I look forward to reading the, uh, the think piece someday. <laughs> I think something else we didn't really touch on here but is very significant is the fact that we are, if we're talking about 1999, we are coming off of the um, ascendance of Leo, right? Sure. So we're coming off of Titanic, which is the biggest movie of all time. It's this huge phenomenon. It's broken all the records. And before that, he's coming off of uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. Which isn't explicitly a high school movie, but it certainly appealed to very large teenage audience at the time. You know, the the, the one-two punch of Romeo and Juliet and Titanic really, really cemented Leo, you know, as this force. And you also have uh, Claire Danes, who is coming off of uh, My So-Called Life, right? Yeah. Which I believe only runs for a season and yet still manages to become a, a pretty big deal in the cultural conversation. You have all these television actors kind of crossing over some more successfully than others but between my so-called life and Dawson's Creek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you know whatever people were doing on MTV even uh, Leo comes from uh, growing pains right yeah a lot of these television stars who are being sort of like anointed in these these mainstream features so you get around to she's all that and it's significant because it's it's now it's this highbrow company in Miramax who's now saying all right we're getting into this game 
Like mm-hmm. we're, we're the guys who made the crying game and the piano and Pulp Fiction. And now we're getting into this teen beat game. And I, I think they were, you know, criticized a lot at the time for sort of like lowering their own bar. And Kevin Smith even makes a joke about it in the aforementioned Jan Silent Bob Strike Pack, where he says, after Miramax made She's All That, everything went to hell. Yeah. And, and, and Miramax in making this movie, it's not like they're hiring some up and coming indie director to helm this project and make it some sort of, uh, you know, some well-regarded critical thing. They hire the this this sort of mercenarial TV Disney kind of guy who had never done a feature film before and goes on to make Boys and Girls and from Justin to Kelly and that's about yeah. it right so <laughs> it, it's not like they they had big ambitions and this is what happened it, it sort of is like this they knew exactly what kind of movie they wanted to make here and, and were okay with going against their their indie critical darling uh, roots yeah because you know even the first two Scream films were released under the Dimension label which was kind of like Miramax's lowbrow genre shingle right mm-hmm. but this time out you're just like nope fucking Miramax stamp it right there boom she's all that Miramax it's happening yeah I gotta say you know it would have been easy to make fun of that decision at the time but 103 million dollar worldwide box office on a 10 million dollar dollar budget um not too shabby and it brings us and i know paul walker had this one-two punch but you know he's he's even more front and center here you know it, it gives freddie prince jr uh an, another sort of notch in his belt after i know you did last summer matthew lillard is already kind of a name right he's coming off slc punk yeah he's coming scream, off of scream of yeah. slc punk and hackers in in 95 right mm-hmm. so i mean yeah this i mean he's just like i said he's, he's got such a weird energy that guy he just he's never even when he's going completely over the top he's never not interesting. It's actually kind of strange that he didn't seem to ever really be able to parlay that into anything else, you know? Like, he popped up in The Descendants, you know, a decade ago, which he's perfectly fine in. I think he was in Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. uh, the new Twin Peaks season most recently. Obviously, he and Freddie Prinze and Sarah Michelle Gellar and uh, Linda Cardellini go on to do the Scooby-Doo movies, which I'm sure they all got super rich off of. Yeah, I mean, he, he's been that. the voice of Shaggy since those movies. Casey Kasem's <laughs> yes. dead. He took over the mantle. <laughs> That's not a bad uh, little cottage industry. No, it's good. But you got got to sell out. I'm sure he has some sort of crazy, like, uh, throat soothing routine that he has to do. every day right but no that's that's not a not a bad way to make a living pretty pretty easy life but you know this this movie is full uncut straight into the vein Matthew Lillard uh, and I think he is or he was at this point definitely a little bit of a one trick pony who was a sort of Matthew Lillard the whole time but this unfortunately this wasn't a star making role for the lead female Rachel Lee Cook who uh, is absolutely adorable and not easy to buy as some sort of undateable wench early in the film. <laughs> right? I mean, it was a joke at the time. Like, yeah. it was literally, this is not something that hasn't aged well. This is literally, at the time, people were making fun of this. They're like, literally, you have one of the most beautiful women who's ever been, who's yeah. ever been born. At the time, for a 16-year-old Matt Knudsen, I could say this without being too creepy because she's actually three years older than me. She was very, very formative for me. I mean, I remember seeing a terrible movie with um, David Paymer and uh, Tom Arnold called Carpool. Oh, yeah. Where she is literally playing. I mean, I think she shows up in slow motion. I think that's how <laughs> that's how lascivious that movie's being towards, you know, 14-year-old yeah. Rachel Lee Cook, whatever she was. And I remember, you know, my eyeballs spinning like um, like a slot machine. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, even at the time, to me, she was already... She was already a big deal. But I did not see this movie in the theater. I think I was being a bit of a snob. And I think coming off of Varsity Blues and being like, no, I only go see R-rated high school movies, right? <laughs> I, I didn't bother with this in the theater. And I, I, I didn't see it until many years later. I definitely did not see it in the theater. I may have half watched it at some sort of high school party at some point. But I'm not sure if that's true. So my full real watch was 
you know, this week. I uh, I was expecting it to be terrible, and it, and it wasn't. It wasn't god-awful. It was actually way more breezy and easy to watch and sort of mildly entertaining and, and, and cute where it needed to be than I anticipated. And a lot of that is Rachel Lee Cook being adorable. A lot of that's sort of the extensive cast. The screenplay which has an uncredited, some uncredited <laughs> work by M. Night Shyamalan, who Indeed. In, in various interviews has taken full credit for the film, and people have pushed <laughs> back on that, so it's unclear exactly to the extent. That he, it doesn't feel like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, right? Well, I'm not super familiar with his pre-Sixth Sense stuff. Like, he did he did, he did, did the movie with uh, Rosie O'Donnell as a nun, right? Yeah. I, th- I want to say that I think the Sixth Sense is actually his third or fourth movie, because I think he was making these really tiny little sort of like religious, re- religion adjacent films before that and i think that's how uh the weinsteins got a hold of him was i think they i think they're the ones who produced that the the rosie o'donnell nun movie i should probably look this up Um, but i think that's how he ended up in that stable as Mm -hmm. and and i think he was doing a lot of these kinds of script polishes before the sixth sense um and so but yeah i mean obviously this movie doesn't have a big, big twist or anything like that right aliens don't show up at any point i mean there's an argument to be made that this is his best screenplay of the year you know it's either that or sixth sense so it's hard hard to yeah, it's a um, toss-up. But I will say, you know, to this film's credit, the screenplay does get through the sort of hacky premise pretty quickly. The more fun stuff is with a lot of the side characters and just little one-off things. You know, the, the funniest scene in the movie to me is, is Kevin Pollack as Rachel Lee Cook's dad screaming out all the wrong answers to Jeopardy sort of nonchalantly while you know, <laughs> these high schoolers are, are cleaning his house. I love just the earnestness with, like, there's just such a confidence every time he says yeah. it. And apparently this is not the first film he did that and apparently that's sort of like a running that's like a Kevin Pollock thing yeah he's like he's done this this bit in multiple movies and I find it completely <laughs> hilarious yeah so he's charming Matthew Lillard's fun Paul Walker is very Paul Walkery as, yeah. as Paul Walkery as, as you can get and, which is fine this is way more of a stock character than Varsity Blues he's just sort of a scumbag um, yeah. it's also fine Freddie Prince Jr. does fine work here his big existential angst is over which Ivy League school he has to choose <laughs> out of all the schools he's gotten into there's a scene where he starts flipping through all the acceptance letters he's gotten because like you said he's he's very uh, um, he's having an existential crisis about mm-hmm. it all. And I, I feel like if I was there on set, I would have told the prop master, like, you know what? Why don't we just tone it down a little tiny bit? Does it have to be Harvard and Princeton and Dar- Like, do we have to go through all the Ivy Leagues? Can't we just throw, I don't know, Michigan State in there? Something yeah, p- p- Put it in Arizona State. Put it in uh, Chico yeah. State or something. Come on. <laughs> just a safety school, please. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, literally the first two he looks at are Harvard and Princeton. You're like, all right, we get it. But this is sort of like what you're saying, what you were mentioning earlier about how late 90s teams films seem to position the you know the beautiful people and, and sometimes even the wealthy beautiful people as potentially not scumbags always you yeah. know like in in the John Hughes era this is you know this the James Spaders or you know, the Robert Downey Juniors or whatever these guys would always be you know, wearing members only jackets and looking down their nose at anybody who didn't have a trust fund. And, yeah. um, you know, like they would always be positioned as the villains. Whereas in these films, you got beautiful, you know, head of the class, president of the class, best looking guy, captain of the soccer team. But he's also very, very smart and very down to earth. Yeah. So I don't know. It's an interesting little subversion. In yeah. Way. I mean, it allows his problems to be different than than the normal things, right? It allows him to be the good guy, I guess. And there are sort of classist 
themes running through this they're not really blatantly touched on too much or they're, they're not really meditated upon like Rachel Lee Cook's father is a pool man who owns those business they seem to be doing just fine but Jodie Lynn O'Keefe's character makes fun of her and <laughs> Freddie, Freddie Prince Jr. is is rich like we said and he's, his dad is some vague businessman of some kind played by Tim Matheson in a, in a nice role I, I thought this movie was going to absolutely be abhorrent and, and, and suck but it had a lot more had a lot, I, this is cliche but it had a lot more heart than I, than I thought it would it, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a chore to, to sit through this not saying I'm going to watch this anytime soon again that, that this <laughs> it's might not have been, going in your rotation might have been the final viewing of She's All That in My Life <laughs> but uh, I, I, I wasn't too upset afterwards I, I mean I don't think it's a slog it, it's it's not a good movie um, I don't think it's aged particularly well but no it's not painful but I, I you know I think that the biggest legacy that this film has is it really is sort of like the epicenter for this movement that we're discussing in that it has the ultimate murderer's row yeah. uh, cast wise I mean Freddie Prinze Jr. of course Rachel Lee Cook Matthew Lillard Paul Walker Jody Lynn O'Keefe Anna Paquin Kieran Culkin Usher Raymond Eldon Henson who's another one of these perennial <laughs> yeah. dude you know per- perennial that guy who's always showing up in these high school movies along with Chris Owen uh, Dulé Hill mm-hmm Great uh, Clea Duvall again. <laughs> Chris Chris Owen shows up here. Milo Ventimiglia, and then uh, interestingly, Rachel. Um, sorry, not Rachel Cook. Sarah Michelle Geller in a non-speaking role. This is two years after I know what you did last summer. So mm-hmm. presumably he, uh, Freddie Prinze Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar are already an item by this point, right? And I believe they're still married as far as I yeah, know. Yeah, still married, still doing their thing. I mean, this was even filmed at the same high school that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was filmed at. So I'm sure she was just around probably. And like you said, absolutely the epicenter of, of, of teen culture going on here. Uh, I also believe this is Gabriel Union's film debut, right? Yes, I'm sorry. I don't know how I skipped over her. Uh, she's she's great I, I think it's her film debut she's in a ton of these movies a year later she does bring it on which changes things for her mm-hmm. she's wonderful I've actually worked with her on a couple movies and she couldn't have been more of a sweetheart to me and now I think she and Jessica Alba have a bad boys spin-off TV series coming up that's sweet. Like a network show coming up later this year, right? A mid-season replacement? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, like the hit rate uh, for careers from from the leads compared to sort of the, the quirkier supporting cast is pretty stark. I mean, Freddie Prinze, Rachel Lee Cook. Rachel Lee Cook does Hallmark movies now. You know, she's stuck around and kept working, but... Yeah, she settled down. Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar, like you said, like it seems like they haven't been able to notch any of the big roles. They haven't hit on any TV series or anything. Sarah Michelle Gellar had a couple failed ones, notably the CBS show with Robin Williams, which is just a surreal thing to even think about. Absolutely, what like a year and a half before he died? I mean, right at the end, right? Yeah, which is which is bizarre. So you know, it seems like these kind of people they can either be in Hallmark movies, be in sort of second rate C list type things, or just decide to hang it up. And I you know I give respect to the Sarah Michelle Gellers and Freddie Princes who just said, you know what, I don't want to, you know, demean myself or, or do something that I'm not into. And so just uh, hang it up and keep those residuals from Buffy and just live your life. I mean, if you look at the Pleasantville Varsity Blues, she's all that, you know, right in a row for Paul Walker. In 1999, would you have presumed that this guy was going to go on to become at least financially the most successful of all these young actors. I mean, he's clearly an absolute heart. I mean, he's an Adonis Mm -hmm. on screen. He's not the most talented of all these actors. I mean, ultimately, I guess he hitched his wagon to the right, you know, at the risk of speaking ill of the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, He he hitched his wagon to the right uh, skyline, right? Yeah, I mean, if Fast and the Furious doesn't become a thing, I don't think he becomes a thing. And even in that... He might still be alive. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Even and, and maybe if Fast and the Furious dies as everyone assumed it would when what, Tokyo Drift came out, right? Even in that period between Too Fast, Too Furious and Fast Four, uh, was he getting a lot of work? I don't remember him popping back up on, on the big screen all that often. So to answer your question, uh, no, because he's not a very he wasn't a very talented actor. Uh, but then again, I, I would say the same thing about Freddie Prince Jr. Uh, maybe thought Rachel Lee Cook would have had a better career. I don't know what to attribute that. I mean, she really doesn't have sort of method acting type abilities or anything like that. So I mean, you look at she's all that. Who's who's having the best career currently of anyone in that movie? Kieran Culkin, Anna Paquin. <laughs> Someone like that, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Anna Paquin is already an Oscar winner by this point, so it's kind of a novelty that she's even in this movie, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just a really interesting time capsule of a film. We don't need to spend too much time on these next two films, but because they came out in 99 and because they fit really nicely into the subject matter, I think it's worth touching briefly on Cruel Intentions, which came out uh, March 5th of 1999, and then 10 Things I Hate About You, which came out March 31st, 1999. Sure. So again, you got, you got this, you got both ends of the spectrum, right? You've got the edgy, R-rated high school movie, and then you have the much more palatable PG-13 kind of chaste version of this genre, right? And I think they both hold up pretty darn well. I watched them again over the weekend uh, because I have that kind of time Mm -hmm. and because I'm fighting a cold, and I think they're both pretty great. I mean, Cruel Intentions is its own kind of novelty because it's so, you know, naughty. Both those movies that we're talking about now have uh, are probably better than these two movies, which is interesting. I, I haven't revisited Cruel Intentions for a while, but I did see it a few times in the theater. Like, I was a huge... Buffy, Sarah Michelle Gellar person. You know, I, I like the the naughtiness of this movie. Pretty sexy movie, especially if you're a 16-year-old boy. Don't want to sound creepy. You can edit that out, Matt, if you want. <laughs> no, I mean, that's but that's what they were kind of selling, yeah. you know? Like, that was kind of the idea, was that, like, there's all these, you know, here's what... Here's what these kids can't do on TV, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, here, yeah. here's what you won't be able to see on the WB. It's actually not that naughty. Like, <laughs> watching it again, I mean, granted, it's 20 years later. Mm-hmm. At the time, it seemed pretty salacious. It's not really all that naughty. But at the time, it was that that was the selling point. Sure. That was that was what they were. And it fucking worked, worked like gangbusters. $76 million on a $10 million budget. Not bad for an R-rated movie. Better than Varsity Blues did. And then 10 Things I, 10 Things I Hate About You comes around at the end of that month. And that will always be kind of a significant movie for us because... We were in high school in Seattle at that time. That is a high school film set in Seattle, Mm -hmm. mostly shot in Tacoma. Did you know people make pilgrimages to Stadium High School in Tacoma now because of that movie? I mean, it's a beautiful location for sure, but I I, I see a lot of these, you know, Instagram influencer types who like make (laughs) pilgrimages to Tacoma to visit Stadium High School because they're such big fans. It makes sense. I mean, it's a beautiful spot, obviously. If you're going to go somewhere for a silly pilgrimage, it's, it's better than, you know, doing a say anything pilgrimage, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> also set in Seattle. Uh, of these four films, that this is the one with the best reputation, right? Like, this is the one that has sort of endured. It seems like this is the one that people revisit. This is the most beloved of these four films, probably. Yeah, right? I mean, it's 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 the best one, right? And it, it has... Heath Ledger's probably the biggest name of anyone we're, we're talking about. I mean, Reese Witherspoon, I yeah. guess, is in there. But 20 years from now, people will know Heath Ledger and know his work. And, you know, young Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, yeah. really helps. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a better movie than any of the other three that we're talking about. Yeah, it's very clever it's very charming and it's not too cloying even though Allison Janney is literally playing a perky guidance counselor whose name is Miss Perky <laughs> uh, 
that's a real thing. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> She's got a plaque right there on her desk. Yeah, I mean, the, the lasting legacy will be that maybe one of the greatest actors of his generation broke out of this film. Mm-hmm. And even just watching it now, I mean, of course, it's crazy in retrospect because he's dead and, you know, he won an Oscar posthumously and everything. But you just look at that and you're like, God, what? Heath Ledger, like, what is he doing in this movie? And he's, you know, he's blowing everybody else off the screen. But at that point, like, yeah, that's what an actor of that age coming from Australia would. I mean, that's what would be available to him at that point, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, he may have potentially developed into quite, you know, maybe somebody who was shaping up to be like the Marlon Brando of his generation or something. But you got to start somewhere. His scenes with Julia Stiles, who's also wonderful in the film, are like there is legitimate chemistry there. And with all due respect to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's totally fine, and Larissa Olniak, Alex Mack, who mm-hmm. never ended up happening for whatever reason. The marquee here is Julia Stiles. Yeah. Heath Ledger. I mean, that is the reason to revisit the movie. And they are, I mean, you look at that and you're like, oh yeah, those are two movie stars being movie stars and yeah. being totally adorable together and, you know, sparkling with this uh, just wonderful chemistry. So you're a huge fan of this movie. I, I like this movie just fine. I think it's really charming, really good. But is this up there in your like all-time high school movie pantheon? Honestly, I'm speaking about it as if I'm a huge fan. I haven't, this is probably my third time seeing it in my life, watching <laughs> okay, it again the okay, other night. Okay. I think I just had a really good viewing with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it, it just really clicked for me. And I, you know, I watched it. I watched these in order. So I watched this at the end and it, it is superior. But yeah, I think I was just really taken with um, with how str- strong Ledger is. It's hard for us to be objective about these, you know, nostalgia ridden high school movies that came out when we were in high school too, right? Yes, but one of my main goals for this series going forward, and maybe I've I violated that a little bit during this conversation, <laughs> is to not allow this to to turn into a member berry nostalgia fest. Like one of the things I would hope that we do is mm-hmm. we approach this more from kind of like an anthropological standpoint, right? Yeah, absolutely. And not just allow it to be like, God, I, I remember the t- first time that I saw Go in the theater and it changed my life, you know, or The Matrix blew my mind. I Let's endeavor to keep it from becoming that and more about, you know, context and retrospect. Yeah. I think we've done a fine job today, but even so, today we were talking about high school movies, so it's hard not to touch on our experiences with high school going into it, but the other movies have less sort of... uh you know, tangible connections to us in that time. So I, I think we will be able to take a better step back with some of the movies coming up, which uh, do you want to touch on those a little bit, what we have sort of on the docket? I mean, all things considered, uh, February, traditionally, not a great month for movies. Mm-hmm. And 1999 was uh, no exception. So of the the sort of slim February pickings, I kind of feel like Office Space might be the place to go next and uh, I'm certainly open to suggestion. If you have suggestions, uh, by all means, uh, why don't you shoot an email to wlmpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you'd be interested in hearing us cover over the next 10 or 11 months. But in the meantime, uh, I'm thinking of revisiting Office Space. How do you feel about that? I feel great about it. Saw it opening day. It was, uh, my dad was super into it and I somehow made the connection between Mike Judge and Beavis and Butthead. And I was a big (laughs) Beavis and Butthead guy and he was a... you know, frustrated with office work, so <laughs> it worked out well. This is going to be great because we have the the exact opposite histories with this film. I don't think I saw Office Space until years later. I probably didn't see Office Space till college. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to somebody who was there. <laughs> oh, I was there. Day. I was there on the ground, baby. In the meantime, I'm going to go listen to Third Eye Blind, Foo Fighters, Fat Boy Slim, Smash Mouth, Sublime, Sneaker Pimps, 311, Green Day, Collective Soul, Fastball. Liz Fair, Save Ferris, and Sixpence, None the Richer. Well, I'm just going to listen to my Paul Cole greatest hits. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.
sweet.